Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Seventy-eight <laughs> percent of evangelicals agreed with that statement in a recent survey. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Sixty-eight percent of evangelicals disagreed with that statement. The Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. Fifty-nine percent of evangelicals agreed with that. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 61% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. That was done by Ligonier Ministries. It's a survey called the State of Theology. You can read that and be <laughs> discouraged. If you want or see the need for mission, um, there's some good news in it as well. But, I mean, when I read things like that, you know that if you agree with that first statement, you are a Jehovah's Witness. You're an Arian, not a Christian. And the, the same thing about the Holy Spirit being a force. You can't lie to a force. Ananias and Sapphira found out he was rather personal. See, what I want you to see is we're not just reading interesting history in Acts 17. Paul is not the only one who is, who is living in the midst or working in the midst of a people who really don't know who God is. To a large extent, God is unknown in the church today and surely in the culture. And in our text today, people that have a, an altar to the unknown God are Paul's audience. Along with all the other gods we saw last week they had in Athens. And so we've seen, as we've seen, I alluded to earlier, we are, in the, we are on, in the second missionary journey, what we call the second missionary journey of Paul. We've seen him go to Thessalonica, a church be birthed through preaching the gospel, persecution rise up, run them to Berea. Berea, they're there preaching, they're noble people there who listen and examine the scriptures and come to faith in Berea. Then persecution comes from Thessalonica, runs Paul out. He's in Athens, and while in Athens waiting on Silas and Timothy, he did what we probably would have done as a little sight seeing in the city and he was rather disgusted by what he saw because the city was full of idols and idols temples and what he really sees is a people in captivity who need the gospel who need Jesus and so now he's in Athens and he's like he was grieved he was provoked by the idolatry and his the way he addressed that idolatry was witness in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fears and in the marketplace and that's what's brought that what brought him to the Areopagus the place of the meeting of the elite and the council sometimes is near the Parthenon and above the, the city where the marketplace was. And they brought him there because he's, he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul is preaching the gospel and some of the philosophers are like, what is this? 
Right? Some just write him off. Some are interested. But it, at any rate, he has been brought to this place of discussion in Athens where he will preach a famous sermon now. Uh, his sermon on, on Mars Hill, you might hear sometimes, or, or on the area of Pegasus. But he's preaching in our text. He's preaching to a people who have no knowledge of Scripture, pretty much, who have no knowledge of God, who have gods for everything. God of the sky, God of the water, God of the, you know, love, God of this, God of that. Mm-hmm. And Paul's going to be very lovingly bold with them. But he's preaching to a people who worship an unknown God. They don't know who God is. Not that they don't know that He is. That's where all this idolatry and perversion comes from, a rejection of the truth. But they don't know who he is and they don't know how he's to be worshipped and they're running suppressing the truth you know Jesus says men reject the light because their deeds are evil and Paul knows the gospel is the answer and so that's what he's delivering here he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection by the way without the resurrection there is no gospel we'll, we'll talk more about that later but this I wrestled with this because this, as you know, this, this sermon could be a whole series of sermons. And you can break it down and take every little piece. And my fear was, and what I want you to have some encouragement this morning, my fear is that we can take this text and do what we do with other texts sometimes and, and miss the forest for the trees. We can so focus in on each individual tree that we don't see the flow. We don't see what God was doing. We don't see... Paul's method and, and, and so much encouragement. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to break this up into a long series. I'm going to walk through with you today. Um, verses 22 to 34. So I hope you brought a lunch. No, <laughs> no, no, it should, you know, normal length. But what I want us to see today and be encouraged by and see that we can, we can learn from Paul and we can talk to people who don't know God, who don't know Christ, who don't know the gospel. And it's really not all that complicated. We are to proclaim the unknown God. In other words, we are to be proclaimers of the God that people don't really know. And tell them lovingly, graciously who He is. But the main point today I want you to take away and kind of this just gives you the outline. We proclaim the unknown God by finding a point of contact, by sharing the basic storyline of the Bible, and by leaving the results to Him. By finding a point of contact, sharing the basic storyline of the Bible, and leaving the results to Him. So first point, proclaim the unknown God by finding a point of contact. Look back in verse 22. So they brought Paul up on the Areopagus. He's standing in the midst of the Areopagus, but he's already done his homework. He's already had in his mind connections that he can make. And it says this, Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, the elite, what was sometimes the court, right? Men over, had charge over the religion of the city. Could be intimidating. But notice what he, what he does. And this, is, this might surprise us. Paul doesn't come in with guns blazing. You bunch of wicked idolaters. He doesn't do that. He's respectful. And gentle. He's firm. He's committed. But look at, look at how respectful he is. Men of Athens. I perceive 
that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along observing the objects of your worship, not mine. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Let's just make sure we cover all the bases. And we'll just put one here to we don't know who. These have, some of these have actually been found. Archaeologists have found them. But he, he says, he says I'm, I'm noting that you're very religious. He's looking for a point of contact. Let me tell you what Paul knows. Paul knows as wrapped up in idolatry as all these people are, they are created in the image of God. Deep down in their hearts, they know there's a God. In their hearts, they are resistant to that God. Apart from grace and God changing their hearts. But he doesn't come in guns blazing. And he, listen, one thing you'll also notice, and I, I'm not here to unnecessarily offend anybody, but Paul doesn't stand up there and say, I want you to know God has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you'll just admit you're a sinner and pray this prayer after me, you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere is that method in Scripture. Paul knows that if people are going to see the gospel as good news, they have to understand the bad news. And establishing the bad news starts with establishing who God is. And so he's being faithful. He's not shortcutting it. He's not preaching easy believism. I'm not saying nobody's ever been saved by such an approach, but that's not what we see Paul doing here. And he is before a lot of people who are, are ne have never been reached with the gospel, who don't know God. And I think his, his, his way of doing things is very instructive on how we should approach it. But he makes a point of contact, knowing that their images bearers of God. They're created in the image of God. It's been marred in sin, but there's a connection there. You can speak to that. And so his point of contact is, listen, I see you guys are very religious. You're very religious. I mean, there's gods everywhere. You can turn your napkin over and find one on the table. I mean, they're everywhere. You can't, there are more gods than people in the city. Religion is ingrained in mankind. Isn't it? Why is that? Because we're created in the image of God. And listen, we are created to worship. And we are going to worship something. And if we are suppressing the truth and rejecting the true God, we're going to come up with our own gods, even if that's us. But he says, listen, I know you're very religious. I know you're worshiping. But you're worshiping contrary to the truth. Right? He lets, he lets the word. He lets what he's preaching confront. He knows a lot about these people. that may not, They may not even know about themselves. That they are resistant to the truth. That they are suppressing the truth. Right? And he knows that they're living contrary to their purpose. Listen. We, we're live, we live contrary to our purpose. We are malfunctioning. As 
image bearers of God when we're not worshiping the true God in the way according to His Word. Wires are sparking. And man, they're sparking all over the place in Athens. They're worshiping, but it's not the true and living God. And his launching point for the gospel, this connection he's made as he did his sightseeing, this perfect set the ball on the tee, is finding that altar that said to the unknown God. You're admitting there, you know there's a God. You're admitting you don't know who he is. So guess what? I'm going to tell you who he is. That's what he does. Now look at this. In verse 23, his launch with this unknown God. His point of contact and launching pad, if you want to put it that way. He says this, after saying he found the altar of the unknown God, he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God you're talking about, but you don't know, I'm going to tell you who he is. You made me a perfect opportunity when you made that idol. For me to speak the truth about God to you. What you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. One thing I just point out, we'll come back to this later. Paul was observant. He was observant in the midst of the people he wanted to reach out to. He was watching for points of connection for the gospel. Points of contact. And they can be very simple sometimes. I mean, one time I had a customer and I was, I'm sitting, I used to do route sales and I'm sitting in front of him and something frustrated him. And I don't take any credit for this and I'm usually not this quick. But um, he was frustrated and he said, Jesus Christ. And I said, is Lord. And he said, he said, what? I said, you said Jesus Christ. I said, is Lord. And he, he's like, wow, that's right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And I said, you don't have to apologize to me. But it was a connection there. And we had good discussions after that. I mean, a point of contact can be something, just something that people say in conversation. And even if you miss it, like you're having a conversation with somebody and they say something, it piques your mind, but then the phone rings or you have to go away. Later, you can go back and say, you know, when you said that, it, it started me thinking. And you can, you can segue to the gospel. It can be a t-shirt. I mean, I had that opportunity at the gym with a guy wearing a t-shirt. And he was rather proud about his physique. And it said, his t-shirt said, I look like this because Jesus loves me more than most people. <laughs> and I, said, I walked over to him. I said, so you're a Christian? And he said, No. I said, oh, that's just a t-shirt. And he's like, yeah, it's just a t-shirt. So, but I got an opportunity. I haven't gotten more opportunity, but I got a little opportunity to talk with him and, and invite him. And, you know, that's a shortcut, really. I, sometimes we invite people to church. You just, if we can get them in church, Jeff will witness to them, right? Which is true. <laughs> Jeff will offend them for me. Um, and I probably will. Not intentionally, Right? But I even take that shortcut sometimes. So we get intimidated sometimes, don't we? And say, well, come to church. I don't tell them, you'll find me up there. No. <laughs> it could be a tattoo. I had, I had one guy at the gym had a tattoo on his arm said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I'm like, wow, that is so cool. I didn't know you were a Christian. And he said, well, my mom and daddy are. 
And I thought, whoa, you got that to impress your mom and daddy and try to. So <coughs> continuing opportunity with that fellow. He, he's still there. But you know what I'm saying? It's just if we're observant, we can see things. Don't just come out of the blue. Brother, are you saved? I mean, they see you, they'll start running when they see you coming, walking around the corner. But watch for points of connection. Paul did. That's what he used. He saw the idolatry. You're a very religious. He saw the idol. And he's like, this is to an unknown God. This is gospel ball on tea right here. And he launched from there with that point of contact. So be watchful with the people you're trying to reach. Secondly, proclaim the unknown God by sharing the basic storyline of the Bible. And I want you to watch this because Paul is, he is, he is, Sharing biblical theology. He's sharing the main cur curvature. The, the story of the Bible. But nowhere in this talk does he say. Genesis 1 says this. And Isaiah 45 says this. And he, You don't have to do that. Especially with people that don't know the Bible. And don't know God. Just speak the Bible. They don't know you're doing that. Right? Speak the story of the Bible. The Word is what God uses, His Spirit uses to bring life. But Paul, by the way, verse numbers didn't come along till like the 1500s. There were no verse numbers originally. Chapters didn't come along till somewhere in the 1200s, I think. You know, they were scrolls. That's why you see a lot of times when, when the apostles are preaching to Jews, they'll say things like the prophet Isaiah said or... Because that's really, I mean, they could say 14 sixteenths of the way through the scroll. But they just use the name. And you see, Paul is he's teaching really sound, good truth about God. But they don't know what the Bible is. And they, it wouldn't make a connection. It might seem a little weird. So he's just giving what he knows about God. And that's what I thought. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been... Not intentionally, but I mean, last week I said, you know, two things that will empty a room, talking about prayer and evangelism, and I talked about both of them, and you came back, praise God. But <clears throat> sometimes when we talk about evangelism, it can be sort of heavy and convicting. You know why? Because, listen, look around the room. We all fail. We do. None of us take advantage of every opportunity. We all get discouraged. We all think, oh gosh, everybody's doing this better than me. And God's using you in ways you have no idea and keeping you humble in the process. And that's a cool thing. But I wanted you to be encouraged by Paul and to see really how easy he made it. He was just sharing what he knew. And that's really all God asked us to do is share what we know about God. But look at what he says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through this kind of fast. These are some, some deep things about God. We'll come back to these at some point, maybe either in a class or and talk about more about the attributes of God. But I want you to see what he's doing. Look what he did. He said, what you, in verse 23, what you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. And now, the God, not the gods, not a God, the God, one, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is not a tribal deity. He's not just for one portion of the God. He owns it all. He created it all. He's presenting, he starts with God as creator, the Lord, Yahweh. You may have heard Jehovah, right? But he says, the Lord, the God who made the world and everything in it. There is one creator. I mean, gosh, it just dings a bell in your mind. Genesis 1, right? 
So he's sharing the truth of Scripture. The God, one God, monotheism, not all these. And, and see, the truth by implication tells them all these are false. There's one God who made heaven and earth. There's one Creator. And it wasn't hard for Him. The God who made the world and everything in it. Watch this. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. The Creator God, the one who spoke it all into existence, the one who sustains it and has a purpose for it and is taking it to His ultimate goal of the glory of God in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gospel going to all the nations. And a tribe a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are being one to Christ, if you like that terminology, who through weak people who think they're failing. <laughs> the, the God. Who made the world and everything in it. He created everything. Genesis 1, Psalm 19, 139. I'm just giving those to you. There's only one God. Read Isaiah. But Paul's just sharing what he knows. It's not the God of the sky and the God of the water and the God of crops. One God, one Lord. Notice one thing about what Paul does here. This is very interesting. He's talking to people who are idolaters who don't know the true and living God. Watch what he doesn't do. He doesn't start off by trying to prove God. Why? Thank you. He knows they know. Nobody's neutral. Don't let them draw you into that trap. Don't make them the judge. Proclaim God. He doesn't start with trying to prove to them or show them why it's reasonable to believe in this God. He just starts the God who made the heavens and the earth. He knows everyone knows they exist. They have rejected the true knowledge of Him for idolatry, but they know He exists. And later He would write this. So I was thinking, what were you thinking, Paul? Thankfully, He tells us what He knows about people. Look at Romans 1, 18-20. This is how Paul starts preaching the gospel in the book of Romans. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Holding down the truth in favor of unrighteousness. Jesus said the same thing when He said men refuse to come to the light because their deeds are evil. We love our sins so we refuse the gospel. That's our natural state. I remember that state. By their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Four, connection. What can be known about God is hidden from them because He hasn't shown it to them. They have to... Look at that. Plain. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. There's enough evidence for God in the creation to hold us all accountable. And then within us, see, it doesn't just stop out there. We're part of the creation and in our hearts, there's revelation of God. We all know that He exists. Look at, Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because He has shown it to them. For, again, connection, keep reading. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly Perceived. See, nobody really needs more evidence. 
ever since the creation of the world. Now watch this. In the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Sufficient light to know there's a God. To know that we're accountable to Him. Now the creation doesn't preach the gospel to us nor do our hearts. But in, in creation, there is sufficient knowledge to, for God to hold men, women, boys, and girls accountable. You don't need anything else. You just need to know what the problem is. The problem's not with God and His revelation. It's with us and our rejection of it in favor of sin. So that's why Paul's not trying to prove God to them. He knows they know God exists. He knows they're suppressing that truth. And, they're, and if you go on reading in Romans 1, you'll see the outflow of the rejection of the knowledge of God is idolatry. Which is the very thing he's in the midst of. So Paul explains himself in Romans. I, some of you haven't been here since I said this. Go read and know the book of Romans. If you understand the book of Romans, you will understand the rest of Scripture. Okay? If you want more de detail on Old Covenant, go read Hebrews 2. Not 2, but also. <laughs> Second, look what else he says. I, I need to move on. He said, I, I'm proclaiming the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. He rules over what he has made. He is in control. He is on the throne. It is not out of control. He is accomplishing his purposes. He's Lord of all of creation. And now look what it says. Uh-oh. Now he's getting a little bit confrontational, but he's doing it with truth. He didn't like, yeah, you wicked sinners. He says, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, the Lord who rules over it, does not live in temples made by man. Now we're touching, right? And he could have, I mean, he could have pointed up to the Parthenon when he said that. Patron goddess of the city. And he might have. He does not live in temples. Why? Why does not God live in temples? Because they, he can't. They can't contain God. Big word, transcendence. God is above, other than, and distinct from all He has made. He is above, bigger than, outside of, distinct from all that He has made. That will stretch you if you think about it. He cannot be contained by a temple. He can manifest His special presence in a temple like in the Old Covenant, but He cannot be contained by it. He cannot live there. He doesn't need a house. He says, God doesn't live in temples made by man. Solomon realized this when he dedicated the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8, part of his prayer. He said this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven... Now watch this. Watch Solomon's theology. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Notice the word contained. God could manifest, and He did, His special presence in the Holy of Holies, right? It could be a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and all of that, but He was not contained there. He didn't live there, necessarily. 
So could God in His fullness be contained by a temple or many temples? Solomon said, not by this one, as grand as it is, because He's transcendent. He's bigger. Creation is not part of God. But it's His creation. I can still see the two circles in seminary of Creator and Creation. And always trying to keep that distinction between the two. God is bigger outside of distinct from all that He's made. He is an infinite being. The universe is not big to Him. Because no matter how big the finite is, the infinite is infinitely bigger. And there we go in philosophy and I'm done. <clears throat> Watch what else. And, and you like, keep talking about that. Well, some of you want that and some of you are like, move on. But he, thank God He's not all transcendent. He is imminent. He's involved and we'll see that. But he says, he says, he says, this unknown God that you don't know who is Creator, who is Lord, who doesn't live in temples. Look at what he says. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He's not dependent on anything. He is self-existent and self-sufficient. It pleased Him to save us by His grace. It pleased Him to, to, to do what He does, but He doesn't need those things. Paul says, He does not live in temples and He's not served by human hands. He's, his needs aren't met through us as though He needed anything. Now watch. Since He gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. James would say every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. See, we get it backwards when we create idols. We think we're creators and create a God. And when we create gods, those are, those are ones that we can easily, most of the time, please and serve and will serve us. But God doesn't need anything. He is self-sufficient. He is the giver of life. Listen, you're sitting here. Pause for a minute. Take a breath. That was a gift. If God were not sustaining us, it would cease to exist. Still a mystery. Decide is what holds the universe together. I know, but... What holds you together? What's giving you life? Why do you have a breath? There's a lot of mystery in this because you'll say, man, why do I have it so good and they don't? Or why do I have it so bad? You've got to trust God with it. But He gives us life and breath and heartbeat and joy. Name it. He's the Creator. He's the Giver. And He is so loving and gracious. That he has a man standing here in the midst of these idolaters sharing with them his gospel. He gives to all mankind, including you, life and breath and everything. So when men resist him, when men reject him, when men try to explain him away, they are just using his gifts against him. We have to stand in his lap to even try to explain him away. We can't make sense of beauty or rationale or logic or any of those things without God. And look at this. Now, digging way down 
in verse 26. Well, let me, let me give you Jesus first. It's giver of life. John 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning, notice how this connects with Genesis 1. And I'm just pointing this out to you so you can think about it later. But talking about life coming to us. We, without Jesus, we, we wouldn't have it. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. By the way, notice John chapter 1, verse 1, teaching that Jesus, the Word, is God. And that's the proper translation. So don't let Jehovah's Witnesses fool with you. All things were made. Everything was made through Him. And without, that's Jesus. And without Him, the Word, was not anything made that has been made. And Him was life. There it is. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And will not overcome it. Life from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But he says, he says this in verse 26. I need to move on. Watch this. He made, that's God. He made from one man. God made from one man. God made from one man. Adam. Adam. Every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined the allotted periods of those nations and the boundaries of those nations as well as individuals, right? From one man, God made every nation. From one man. Adam was a real guy made by God who had a real wife made for him. And from those two come everybody. He's the one mysteriously in God's plan that plunged us into sin. And the second Adam, Jesus, came to fix that situation. But he's saying, from one man, God made every nation. That He rules over and is sovereign over. Again in verse 26. He's determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He is sovereign over. Remember he said Lord earlier. He is ruling. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Because he is sovereign. Yet so. Without violating the will of the creature. Taking away second causes or any of those things. Good true reformed theology teaches both the sovereignty of God. And the responsibility of man. God is sovereign. We are free to make decisions. But we haven't been free to choose the good since the garden apart from God's grace. But He's sovereign over that. And He's gracious. Look at this. 27 and 28. And I know you're thinking, man, you're going too fast over these things. I know. I feel it. But I want you to see the flow and see what Paul is doing. 27 and 28. Why did he do that? Why did he make everything? Why did he rule over it? How has he organized it? Watch this. That they should seek God. Scriptures command us to seek God. Even though we in our own nature will resist that until He operates in us by His grace. But the purpose of God making man was for man to have relationship with Him. God is gracious and approachable. Look at this. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. Notice the feeling their way. Think of, have you ever been in an absolutely dark room, kids? I mean, completely dark. I mean, you can't see anything. 
So if you, if you try to walk in a dark room, what, what happens? I mean, you, you gotta, you better, you better be careful and be feeling around and where in the world am I? If you just go prancing through a dark room, well, I did that one time and almost broke my leg on a coffee table, so I wouldn't advise it. But they may feel their way. Notice what he's saying there. We're, we're born in darkness. We're groping. We think we're, sometimes we even think we're trying to find God when we're running from Him. But God's purpose is to, to bring man to Himself in salvation. And it says, yeah, actually He's not far from each one of us. Notice that. I said He was transcendent, above and beyond, separate from the creation. But we're not deists. He's also imminent. And He's here. Did you know that God is here in the fullness of His being in this room? And everywhere else. He knows everything about you. Your thoughts before you think them. Your actions before you do them. Psalm 139. That used to really drive me crazy to think about that. Before I knew Christ. Can't hide under the covers or under the bed or in the closet. Psalm 139. Or in hell or in heaven or in the sea. and God's there. He says, yet He's actually not far from each one of us. He is right there. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. God calls people to come to Him. Isaiah says this. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth because I'm the only one. There is no other. Okay, there you go. Mormonism out. In case any of those nice people are coming to your house talking to you. And look what Paul does. So God is sovereign. He's transcendent. He is, he is holy, sure. He doesn't dwell in temples. He, he has created everything. And He's done it through one man, every nation on the earth. And His goal is to draw, seek me, Right? And Paul says, he's not far from each one of us. Now look at this. He starts quoting poets. Now listen, let me, let me tell you something. And, and home, do this for me as well. In Scripture, when somebody is quoted, unless it's another apostle, when like these poets are quoted, they're simply verifying that quote. Not everything that poet ever said. Right? So he says, in him we live and move and have our being. That was Epimenides of Crete, a poet who said that. And then he says, even some of your poets, Athenians, have said, he doesn't name them, but it was probably Eratus, for we are indeed his offspring. God is our source. We're not a source. We can't create gods. We are his source. I mean, he is our source. Being God's offspring, not, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, the image formed by the art and imagination of man. We can't create gods and we should not think of God that way. Those are not gods. They're idols. They're empty. They're futile. They're fruitless. Paul says in other places in Scripture, people worship demons when they're worshiping idols. And he's trying to set them free by teaching them the truth of, the, of a sovereign, gracious, creator God. Who calls us to seek Him. And tells us how to worship Him. You know, when we study the commandments, one God worshipped in His way. So that we don't blaspheme His name. And on and on we can go. Right? 
So Paul puts for, before them the sovereign creator God who has created all, even them, who gives them life and breath and all things. And he's calling on them to seek God. And we know in the, from the context he's also preaching. This is just a summary of what he said. He's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He's telling him not to, and he could point. I mean, when he's preaching, he could point to all these idols around him. God's not like that. Don't think of God like that. Think of God the way I am teaching him to you. Don't try to be a creator. Be a creation. And submit to the true and living God. And look how he wraps it up. These times of ignorance are the times of ignorance God overlooked. That doesn't mean that he didn't care. That they were not sinful. It means that he didn't immediately judge them. He's, he's long-suffering. He's giving time for repentance and time for His plan of salvation to play out. But the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now. Now notice, man, can you imagine how they're listening and how their ears might perk up? God has overlooked the time of ignorance. He didn't bring immediate judgment, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Flee from idolatry. He is the creator. And he is calling upon you. When he's talking in, in the, the, the Athenians around him. You're included in everybody. All people everywhere. He's commanding you to repent of idolatry. And seek the true and living God. Where he can be found in Jesus his son. Who has been raised from the grave. What is repentance by the way? It's not just doing good things, right? Sometimes we, we, we're, we're more behavior mod modification than repenters. We just stop doing this and start doing this. I stop reading my Bible and I mean, I stop not reading my Bible and I read it. But that's fruit of repentance if it's done right. That's, that's what John the Baptist would call fruit of repentance. Repentance actually has to do with the heart. Repentance is a change of mind and heart about God, sin, salvation. Repentance is a 180 in the life. Right? So we're born running from God. Sometimes we do that religiously. Sometimes we claim to be atheists. And repentance is a change in the direction of my soul. I go from running from God to turning towards Him and turning my back to what I previously sought and pursued my idolatry, my sin, whatever form it took. I turn to God and look to Him for salvation and all other things. So it's a change of mind and heart about God's sin and salvation. To repent is to see that nothing good dwells in me and to look outside myself for a Savior. It's turning away from sin and self and looking to God for forgiveness and salvation. It's being renewed and enabled to grow in loving and living for God. It's being been enabled by God to turn to being dead in trespasses and sins and seeking my own way. The gospel comes and the Spirit gives me life. So I turn and submit to God and receive His salvation. And then I love God and want to grow in living for Him. But it's a change on the inside. Repentance is an inner change that bears external fruit. 
When my heart is changed, when my mind is changed, when I now think of God as wonderful and, and loving and somebody I want to seek, when I now go from rejecting to trusting Jesus, when I see that He, he lived to fulfill all righteousness for me, that He died to pay the penalty for my sin, that He was raised from the grave, proven it's all true, and He gives me salvation as a free gift, that should make me love Him and want to live for Him. If I don't love Jesus, something is wrong. And that's the test of our repentance. Do we love Jesus? And does our life show it? We have a beautiful picture of repentance in the Thessalonians. Remember how they went to Thessalonica and preached the gospel? And some people hated them, but some people got saved and a church was born. And this is what Paul said about the Thessalonians in chapter 1. He said about the others, They themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you, the Thessalonians, the believers there. Now watch, here it is. How you turn to God. Remember, turn to God from idols. Quit worshiping idols and hoping in them. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and wait for His Son, Jesus from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And look at this, verse 31. We have proof that the Gospel is true. God provided proof that the Gospel is true. Now it's about more than that. But look in verse 31. Because He commands all people to repent, verse 30, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection proves Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The resurrection proves that Jesus will judge. The resurrection proves the gospel true. One thing you can say, the resurrection is proof though of the coming judgment. God has proved that He will judge the world by Jesus through His Son and has given assurance of that by raising Him from the dead. So he's saying to these people, are you ready to face God's judgment? And if we're thinking right, if they were thinking right, the answer would be no. And the good news is that God commands repentance, but He creates it in our hearts and faith so that if we turn and trust in Jesus, we're accepted in the Beloved, forgiven of our sins, and the judgment has passed for us then because God declares us righteous. On the basis, now we will still stand before God and answer, but not whether or not we'll be saved. That's taken care of when by God's grace we trust in Jesus. But let me ask you a question. If you, if you don't believe the gospel, if you're going to really reject Christianity, you have to prove that Christ didn't raise from the dead. Otherwise, it's just blind faith you're, you're using to reject it. And many men have taken on the task of proving that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And a lot of them became Christians in the process. To disprove Christianity, you would have to disprove the resurrection. Many have tried. All have failed. Turn and trust in Jesus. Christ died for our sins according to the gospel. 
He was, he was buried and he was raised the third day. Well, quickly, he, how did he end? Verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst and some men, now notice the word for men is obviously being used generically here because a woman's included in the group. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So some of them believed, some of them repented and turned to Christ. Some of them mocked and some of them sort of rode the middle. We'll hear you again about this. That's going to happen when we witness too. Leave the results to God. Proclaim the unknown God, point three, by leaving the results to Him. So where do you stand? Are you trusting in this Jesus? Are you resting your hope of salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone? Let me give you just a few things to take home with you. I'll do it quick. I know we're running late. And um, then I'll be done. But listen, work to know. How can I apply this to my life? Well, Paul shared what he knew about God, so work to know God. God has given you the word so that you might know everything that pertains to life and godliness. So by a gracious work, depending on him, praying to him, work to know God. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Paul knew the scripture and he knew the big story and he was able to share the big story. He could share the details too if they came back at certain points. So be willing to share the big story that God has taught you. From his word. Secondly, look for points of contact with the people around you. I know it's hard with family because they know you and they knew you when and they don't necessarily believe everything you say. But look for points of contact with people that you can connect to the gospel in this natural transition to talking about God, sin, salvation, Jesus. I mean, like the latest news. One of the things, and I'm going to skip some stuff because I know I'm running along. Jeffrey Epstein, the, the wealthy human trafficker of young girls, recently committed suicide in prison, maybe. <laughs> some, some in the media said he, 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 he cheated justice. He cheated justice. What better opportunity to talk about the gospel? It's appointed for men to die once and then to face judgment. He has not cheated justice. He might have missed man's court. But it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He has not escaped justice. Thirdly, be gracious and winsome. Don't be a jerk when you witness. Or a jerkette. What do you call women jerks? Huh? A jerkess. Don't be a jerk or a jerkess when you witness. You old wicked. That's why street preaching has such a bad name. It's because a lot of street preachers do that. Stand up there and call people names. And it's one of they don't get shot. I'm not in saying you should go shoot them. Good sock in the head might be good for some of them. Though. <laughs> That's not gracious and winsome though. Be gracious and winsome. Remember, listen, you're a critic. Not, I mean, you're a witness, not a critic or a judge. Paul didn't come at him with guns blazing. He, he, he was not confrontational in his approach. He let the truth be confrontational. And the truth is confrontational enough. Right? His motivation was love for Jesus and love for a people in bondage to sin. So be gracious and winsome. Look for points of contact. Work to know the Word. Share the main story when you witness. If you don't know reference numbers, pfft, who cares? 
And if they come back and ask you for them, say, well, I don't know, but I'll help you find it. I'll go look it up. It's real easy. Probably find it on your phone. Share the main storyline of the Bible with people who don't know God and keep it simple and don't worry about the references. Tell them about God. Tell them about man. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about what God requires. And we're going to study that in the spring class, so I'll leave that there. And listen, the last thing I'm going to say is don't take it personally when they mock or when they believe. <laughs> okay? If you share the gospel faithfully, God works through you no matter what happens. It's His will, it's His timing. If they mock or if they believe, it is not because of you. So don't get proud. Don't get down in the dumps. Learn from it, yes. But don't take it personally either way. Let God handle the results. You can see in our culture all around us and the dissent that is happening in our culture that what people really need to know, they have an unknown God. They really need to know the true God. And we have the knowledge of the true God to share with them. Yes, our knees will knock and we'll be intimidated and we might not say everything we wish we would say and we'll learn from it and maybe grow in it. But go into the darkness of the culture. Be light and salt for Christ. Look for points of contact. Good transitions for the gospel. Be ready to share the basic storyline of the Bible. And be at work knowing your God and His grace. And do not get discouraged if you're mocked. Jesus says rejoice if you're abused for Him and His name. So you can, have a, you can really confuse them. If they reject you and throw something at you, you can start dancing and celebrating. Then they really think you're crazy. Share what you know. Leave the results to Him. We are faithful when we share the story. Because to us, He is not an unknown God. He is a known Father through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your work of grace. None of us would know You, really know You, intimately know about you know the truth of who you are and how gracious and loving you are and the salvation that you've given us in your son none of us would know that if you were not gracious if you had not come after us if you had not sought us and caused us to seek you so we thank you we thank you and we thank you also for the knowledge and even for the conviction that's not the end of our story we're left here for a purpose you call us light and salt Encourage us with Paul's faithful testimony here. With how he uh, simply pointed people who didn't know God to God. And his main points were Jesus and the resurrection. I pray that you'd make us willing to speak. I pray that you'd help us to encourage one another with the truth of the gospel. And I pray that we would grow. And that Grace Church would be a lighthouse for your gospel. Help us, Lord. Thank you that there's forgiveness for every failure in our lives, including our failures to witness. Thank you that your throne is a throne of grace for us where we can run and find mercy and help in our time of need. Thank you that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Thank you that we have the word of God, the very word of God that gives us through your precious promises all things that pertain to life and godliness, to living a life that glorifies you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living for us and fulfilling all righteousness, for dying on that cross and taking the wrath of God due us upon yourself and paying the penalty for our sin. 
for rising from the grave and reigning in heaven for us and using us as flawed and sinful as we are to accomplish your purposes. Thank you that we have a hope for this life and the next. That we will live with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And there, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, no more politicians, no more struggle. Thank you. Save those who don't know you, Lord. Grow those of us who do. Be glorified in us because of your grace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.